Let's take a look at John chapter 12. And let me begin with a story. Um, story is told of an eagle. Now, this is a story, so it's a talking eagle, okay? <laughs> talking eagle that flew over the, the top part of Niagara Falls. And uh, this particular day, it was early spring, and uh, there were ice chunks still floating down the river, and he landed on a, a chunk of ice. And as he was getting closer to the edge of the falls, the other birds were flying by saying, fly away, fly away, you're going you're gonna to go under. And he thought to himself, they obviously don't understand my big powerful wings. I can fly away anytime I want. See, it's a, it's a thinking bird too, okay? And just as he got to the edge, he thought, I'll impress him. And he stuck out his wings to fly. And at that moment, he realized that his claws had frozen to the ice. And it took him under. Right? Point is, there's a point of no return. Right? Sometimes we think we have all the time in the world. And then it's too late. We're at the end of John chapter 12. And Jesus is about to give his final plea to the public before he goes to the cross. And John writes. Okay, so there's Jesus talking, but John writes. And he talks about the fact that the people, first of all, would not believe in his signs. Therefore, they could not believe in him. There was a point of no return, and they had reached it. But Jesus still goes on to plea for the people to believe in him. So here's, uh, here's the little three-point outline that I'm going to cover. We're going to get to his passionate plea, but beforehand, John gives two reasons why they could not First they would not, then they could not believe. And we're going to talk about a concept called judicial hardening. It's when God hands us over to our hardness of heart. And then people-pleasing was another reason they couldn't believe. But then Jesus gives his final passionate plea. So let's first of all talk about this concept of judicial hardening. It's as though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe. So what signs had he done? Well, he turned water into wine. He fed the 5,000. He healed the man uh, at the pool of Bethsaida in Jerusalem, and everybody talked about that. He opened the eyes of a blind man. He walked across the Sea of Galilee and the last one we read about was he raised Lazarus who had died from the dead. So he proved who he was, yet they still did not believe. The NIV says would not believe. They wouldn't believe in him. 
so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. And now John is going to quote from Isaiah chapter 53, that great chapter that talks about the suffering servant who is going to be pierced for our transgressions. But it begins with this, Lord, who has believed what he heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? So Isaiah talks about this coming suffering servant, but he begins by saying, who's going to really believe in him? It's a prophecy that there's going to be unbelief. Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, and now he's going to quote from Isaiah chapter 6. He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. By, by the way, who, who did Isaiah see? Yeah, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. In the temple, when Isaiah sees the Lord high and lifted up and the angels are singing, holy, 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 you know who that was? That was Jesus. Right? And in Isaiah 53, when he prophesies about one who will be crushed and bruised for our iniquities, who did he see? Jesus. Right? But in the midst of this, Isaiah prophesies, and John points out, that first they would not believe, and then they could not believe. You know, the, the problem with my eagle illustration is that the eagle in that illustration, he at least wanted to fly away in the end. For my, my illustration to be consistent, it would be closer to say, he landed on the chunk of ice, and as he floated down the river, he thought to himself, I have plenty of time. I can fly away whenever I want. But as he goes over, he doesn't even want to fly away. That's where many people are today. Their hearts are hard to the gospel. Now, I'm going to point out something that a lot of people don't like. He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart. Who's the he there? It's God. God is the one who's blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their hearts in turn, and I would heal them. God is active in the hardening process. Now, let me, let me explain something that, that, that I think will, will help you here. God does not inject new hardness into the heart of a hard-hearted person. What God does is he removes his hand and lets their hard heart become as hard as it can be. His active process is in removing the, the sustaining grace that's there, the common grace that's there, and their heart, their heart hardens. Remember in uh, Exodus, 40 times it talks about Pharaoh's heart being hard. 
And half the time it says God hardened his heart. The other half it says Pharaoh hardened his heart. So who, who, who hardened Pharaoh's heart? Yes, both. Right? How did, how did God harden Pharaoh's heart? Not by injecting sin into his heart, but by exposing Pharaoh to more and more undeniable truth. Ten plagues, ten undeniable plagues that showed that obviously it was Moses' God who was behind these plagues. So God hardened Pharaoh's heart by presenting the hard-hearted Pharaoh with more and more truth. That's how God hardens a heart. You know, in the world of, of teaching and in teaching teachers to teach, there can be this, this kind of assumption that if we're just better, clearer, super articulate, super engaging in how we teach the word of God, then more people will have to believe. How'd that work for Jesus? The same sun that melts the wax hardens the clay. In fact, in super clear presentations of God's word, it should have two results, belief and hardening. Right? We, we want to redo it so it's all you know, smooth sailing. But there's a judicial hardening that goes on. You know, we see it also in Romans chapter 1. Paul says, what can be known about God is obvious. Just look at creation. But man looks at creation and you know what he does? He suppresses that knowledge. And it says, for what can be known about God is plain to them, but they suppress it. Therefore, God gave them up to their foolishness, really. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. He talks about sexual immorality. And then God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. You know, the most dangerous place to be in the world for a hard-hearted person is not the jungles of Peru, but in a Bible-teaching, gospel-proclaiming church. When week after week after week, the person says, mm, not this week. I got plenty of time. No. No. Now, the bad news is, I believe that Scripture teaches that there's a point of no return. The good news is, I have no idea when that is, and neither do you. And also the good news is, the Apostle Paul, before he was the Apostle Paul, was Saul of Tarsus, and he had a pretty hard heart. And God was able to break through that hard heart, and that would be my prayer if you have not given your life to Christ, that God would break through your heart this morning. All right? So, first reason they could not believe is 
there was judicial hardening going on. Second reason, though, is they were involved in people-pleasing, presented with the majesty of Christ and the miracles of Christ. You know what they loved even more than Christ? People's opinions. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him. Now we're going to come back to that word believed. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For, because they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Now, this word believed, it says they believed. Okay? Sometimes that word is referring to genuine saving belief. Other times in Scripture, it's referring to a surface belief that fades away when tested. All right? So, for example, in John 8, it says, So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, if you continue in my word, if you remain in my word, you are truly my disciples. In other words... If six years from now you're not still following me, guess what? You never were truly saved. And he, he pushes pretty hard on these people. And a, a few verses later, you know what he says of them? You're of your father the devil. You're not children of Abraham. You know who your father is? Your father is the devil. So what does that tell you about this word believed? It was a surface belief. Not a genuine belief. James says the same thing. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith, but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Right? So there's a, a, a kind of faith that can save, but that faith doesn't save. Can that kind of faith save him? So these people loved the glory of man more than the glory of God. They love the approval of man more than the smiling face of God. Right? So let me, uh, let me apply this. Let me talk about baptism. Baptism does not save you. Thief on the cross was not baptized. He was saved. He is with the Lord in heaven right now. Okay? Baptism does not save you. But you know what baptism does? It draws a pretty clear line in the sand to determine whether you love the glory of man more than the glory of God. All right? Have you been baptized, believer? You know, uh, Elizabeth and I have been married 33 years. Did I get that right? I'm just testing you. Right? And when we were dating, um, I knew I was going to marry her. Right? And in fact, we even went ring shopping together. And it came but 
I didn't have a job, so I didn't want to propose to her. What am I going to do? Live in my parents' basement with my wife? So I drove around with the engagement ring in my glove box in my little red car. And uh, I remember we were actually, we went to a little diner. And I said, all right, so let's, let's talk about the wedding. And um, she goes, oh, what, what, what wedding? <laughs> I said, well, you know, we're going to get married, right? She goes, I, I don't see a ring. <laughs> and it kind of was a kick in the head to go, whoa, <laughs> I better propose to her and figure this out. So I proposed, and then 10 weeks later, we got married, right? Yeah. Okay. Right? So I wonder if the Lord looks down from heaven and he goes, you know, they, they sing about me and they listen to my word and they call themselves Christians, but where's the ring? How come they won't obey the first thing I command them to do? To cross that line in the sand and publicly declare, I am unashamed to follow Jesus Christ. Have you been baptized? If, if you have any questions, I, you know what, I'm going to grab a cup of coffee afterwards and sit at a table, kind of like Lucy at the booth, you know. And if you want to chat about baptism, I would love to do that, okay? All right. Last thing. So there's two things that prevented them from believing. The first was their hard hearts. God was handing them over. Secondly, they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. And you know, some people, they go, well, I believe in Jesus. I just don't know what, you know, people at work would think or say. Or I don't know what my family would say. Or it could be the other thing. I don't know what in the church they'll say. They might expect me to actually live up to that testimony. So I'm just not going to take a stand. All right, so now, third thing. Let's look at Jesus' passionate pleading. And Jesus cried out and said, so here he's passionately giving one last call to believe in him. Now, you go, wait a minute, didn't John just say that God had handed them over? They would not, therefore they could not believe. Why is Jesus wasting his time? Doesn't he believe in, you know, predestination and the sovereignty of God and all that? Yes, he does. Just notice that Jesus was not paralyzed by that tension between the sovereignty of God and human freedom. I believe he is genuinely calling out for them to believe in him. This is his last public plea. Right? But he plays hardball. He's not soft-selling this. And this is what he cries out. Whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. You may think you believe in God, he's saying. But if you don't believe in me, you don't even really believe in God because he's the one who sent me. We are, uh, we are one. And whoever sees 
me sees him who sent me. Again, here we have this mystery between diversity within the Godhead and unity. There's a separate father and a separate son. But to see the father, you look at the son. Okay? Now, just take a, a moment and realize what Jesus is saying here. You know, the, the old C.S. Lewis quote, if Jesus wasn't God, if he was just a good moral teacher, and he said things like this, what good moral teacher who's not God would say this? If you see me, you see God. Right? So he is, he is making quite a claim here. Now he goes on and he says, I'm going to skip that. I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. It's pitch dark and I've come as this blazing light. Come to the light. Come out of the darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. Right? Now, this doesn't mean he isn't the judge on Judgment Day. He is. He's saying his mission on his first coming was to save. In a day, he'll be hanging on the cross. Right? And those who receive him and believe in his words and believe in him will be saved. But those who reject him and his words by default will not be saved. And they will be judged by those very words that he spoke on judgment day. Okay? Then he says this. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The words that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. Again, if he's not God, what audacity to claim my words will be what determines whether you go to heaven or hell. The words that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment. Okay, and then he defines that. What to say and what to speak. It's God, the Father, who gave me the words to speak. And those are the words that will judge you on judgment day. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say, as the Father has told me, end of public discourse. Come, believe in me. Now, if his words and his commandments are the basis of your judgment on judgment day, Let's be really, really clear what his commandment is. You know, in John's gospel, the heart of his commandment is this. Jesus answered them. Now, they were, they were all talking, the big crowd, and they were saying, what, you're a teacher, you're a prophet, teach us. What should we do to do the works of God? 
This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. My commandment is, believe in me. I'm the Messiah. Place your full trust in me. Now, that's the positive way he, he says it. Believe in me. The negative, he says two chapters later. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. The positive, come to me and have life. If you don't, you will die in your sins. Now, when you believe in him, your sins are taken away because of what he has done on the cross. You are saved by grace. Grace is you get what he did. You didn't earn it. Right? Now, if you reject his words and you don't believe in him, you are not under grace. You're left under law. You're left under the condemnation of the law. Now, Jesus made it very clear, the requirements of the law. If you say, you know, I'll take my chances. I don't, I don't want this Jesus. I'll take my chances on judgment day. Okay. He made it really clear. Here's the standard. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So you can choose the grace plan or the law plan. But if you go with law, you got to keep it perfectly because God's a holy God. He's perfect. You wouldn't, you wouldn't want a, an approximate God, would you? A kind of holy, kind of let it slide God. So if you reject Christ, good luck. You're on your own. The standard is perfection. Now, um, there's been a, a couple of people I've run, run across who if you ask them, have you ever sinned? They go, no, I, I think I'm, I'm pretty good. Well, that's why Jesus in his Sermon on the Mount doesn't leave any wiggle room. So we'll just look at one, one of the things he said. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. And most of the people in the crowd were going, yeah, kept that pretty good there. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. He goes, no, it's not just about the external action. It's about the purity of your heart. And if you've ever lusted, you've violated that commandment and you are not perfect. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. So on his last public plea, he pleads, come to me. I reveal the Father. Believe in me. My words will be your judge. What are his words? Believe in me. And if you don't, this is where you will end up. 
So, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. His word to you is believe. Place your trust in him. Don't die in your sins. Do not perish. Receive the assurance that you will be with him for eternity. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, move through this congregation. I pray for any young or old who may have never received you. Lord, I pray that you would do a work in hearts and that we would all throw ourselves on your mercy and trust in you. Thank you, Lord, for being so clear. Thank you for your warnings. Thank you for even your terrifying warnings. But thank you for your grace. So, Lord, pour out your grace. And may some come to believe you and believe in you this morning. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.